visit patreon.com slash sword and laser. Sword and Laser hopes you will enjoy this program. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and awesome discussions from fans just like you. And we're going to have an awesome discussion today with author Daniel H. Wilson. He's the author of Robopocalypse, its sequel, Robogenesis, as well as seven other books, including How to Survive a Robot Uprising, a very important book, uh, A Boy and His Bot, and Amped. And he doesn't just write about robots. He earned a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University, as well as master's degrees in AI and robotics. His next novel, The Clockwork Dynasty, is out, came out on August 1st, 2017. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell us about The Clockwork Dynasty, and is this going to be the first book in a series, or is it standalone? So right now it's a standalone novel, and the high-level idea, which I'm still kind of getting good at trying to pitch it since I'm doing the book tour right now, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> it's, it's, told in, it's sort of told in two perspectives. So one is set in the past and one set in the present. And in the past story, it imagines this race of human-like machines that are automatons that are living... Uh, in secret and serving all the great empires of antiquity and trying to blend in with human society. And in the present story, it's about an anthropologist who discovers their existence and she goes on kind of this world-spanning adventure to figure out uh, who made them and where they came from. And so instead of like you know, you the the fantasy trope is there's a secret world of elves and fairies out there, and and someone discovers this, <laughs> and no one wants to believe them. In this case. The secret world is is robotics. Yeah, you know, so I got really interested in um, court automatons, right? Like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people are asking me all the time because I wrote Robopocalypse. You know, uh, when are the robots going to kill us? Are the robots about to kill us, Daniel? What's going on with the robots? And so I think a lot about. I've, I've you know, I know I'm going to be asked this. I, I sit and I think a lot about uh, why are we so afraid of robots and what's the deal with this? And what I found, you know researching that and thinking about it is that we've been afraid of robots for a really long time. And we've been trying to build robots as, as human beings uh, across cultures for the last few millennia. We've been doing this. And so there are all of these examples of ancient automatons that are basically robots that were built hundreds or some, you know, there's like, it's mythology, but thousands of years ago. And so, uh, so that's what's really got me started thinking about what if there were walking, talking uh, versions of these automatons that were blending in throughout history in our world. It's, it's it's such an interesting tale because it feels like steampunk, but it's not exactly steampunk. Do you consider it to be steampunk or something else? When I saw the cover, that's whenever I realized, oh, shit, I think I wrote some steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, the cover is beautiful. Uh, it's gorgeous. They, yeah, Double yeah, Bay did a, like an incredible job on that, and and it screams steampunk. Like, and I want to get that heart like tattooed on me. I'm like holding. I'm <laughs> oh, holding that'd be back. really good. <laughs> that would be good. <gasps> Why not? It's really beautiful. You should totally. You so, more than anybody has a right to get that steampunk heart tattooed on you somewhere. I know. I, I'm like I'm super tempted, but. So I didn't. I didn't set out though to write steampunk, and I and I'm not. I mean, I've read some steampunk, and I've really liked it, but it's not something that I'm you know consumed with or anything. And so, 
you know, the way it works is, yes, I have ancient robots that are nearly immortal. They're made of brass and whalebone and, and wood, and they're blending into pre-Victorian society, like in London and, and across Europe and, and Asia as well. But there's also this whole other half of the book that's in the present day, and it's, uh, you know, and it's about, the, it's about June. Basically, what's happening is in the present day, all of these ancient machines are running out of power, and they're cannibalizing each other term, uh, Highlander style. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, which okay. is very fun. And so, <laughs> but, but, you know, their race is going to die if humanity doesn't reach a point where we technologically can understand what they are and how to fix them. And so, that's really sort of, the, it's a scientific quest and it's set in the present day, and it's not steampunky really at all, because by the time we get to the modern day, of course, these machines have upgraded themselves with any new materials they can find. They're not made of brass anymore. You know, they look like people now. So, you know, I hope that it scratches that itch for people, but I, I also hope that no readers get upset whenever they're like, ho, 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 what's all this? You know, like, <laughs> where are all the Zeppelins? They're looking there's at you the... with their monocles and they're like, <laughs> yeah. there's the word clockwork is yeah. in the title, Daniel. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to How many have Zeppelins are in the book, Daniel? Do you have any Zeppelins? Yeah. No, I don't have any Zeppelins. Yeah, okay. It's, so it's, we just need to make that clear to people. Yeah, it's our exact history, only it's populated by these, these hidden machines. So like, to give you an example, uh, I I don't have any like, you know, steam powered computers or anything like that, but I do have a moment when there's a robot serving with the East India Company in in uh, or sorry, who's who's fighting with the British soldiers in India and shooting armored elephants, you know, from like a parapet. So, you know, I have a scene where a robot that looks like a 12-year-old girl is playing a harpsichord in the destroyed conservatory of an abandoned mansion. <laughs> like, mm. I mean, it's, you know, you can see how it would kind of scratch that itch, but, you know, but, yeah, it's, but the it's difference different. engine, it isn't. No, it sounds fantastic. I, and I love the idea of it being that secret, not secret society, but that secret world that existed all around us and we just didn't know it. Well, they have, you know, they send messages to each other and, and they've been embroiled in these shadow wars that are happening over the ages. I mean, one thing I really like about it is, you know, something I didn't realize actually until someone told me this at a barbecue. Uh, and shout out to you, TJ, because uh, <laughs> he, he, he clued me in. This is actually a reverse apocalypse because hmm. in Robopocalypse, Robots literally tear people apart. They tear the civilization apart, you know. But in this novel, they are actively trying to guide our society into a technological future in order to save their own butts. Um, and so it's kind of fun that, you know, to see that it's, there's this big reversal here. And as an author, I mean, come on, like, you can't just write the same thing again and again. You've got to get out and explore and do yeah, new things that yeah. make you happy. I like it. So let, let's talk about the kind of messy ethics of, of creating objects and then imbuing them with life. I feel like this is a story that goes back, you know, biblical times, like sure. with, with Gollum. So where did you get your inspiration from? Where, for you, what was the, what was the, the proto-robot uh, that you based your story on? <laughs> so I have a lot of strong feelings about our relationship with technology, and in particular robots, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I tend to mm -hmm. actually be very optimistic and positive about robots, which has disappointed many a person who's interviewing me, hoping that I'm going to like talk about 
throw out some Elon Musk style like uh, doomsday prophecies. <laughs> but um, <laughs> w- with these robots, I call them Avtomat. So in the novel, they're called Avtomat. If I accidentally call them that, that's, that's where that came from. Mm. Um, the idea is that they each have a word um, that kind of defines their purpose. And so that really was inspired by Hebrew mythology, like the idea of, of a golem, which, you know, is this big creature made of mud. I've always thought of them as robots, basically. And you either imprint the forehead with like a word or you tie, you write up a message on a scroll and put it in the golem's mouth. And then it kind of like animates and does the job. And then, and then, and then, it, and then it turns back to mud. And also, of course, just programming robots, right? Those are words, right? It's something totally magical about that. You, you put these words down in a certain sequence, like an incantation, and then you compile it. And that's like, poof the thing starts doing stuff in the world that you could have never predicted and learning things. And so there is something really powerful about this idea of a word and using that to, to, to give life to these creatures. But what I really wanted to do with the idea of this word is I wanted to play around with free will, right? Like do, do these machines have free will? Let's, let's do this. Let's boil it down to one single word. You know, all you have to do is fulfill this word and even then, they're completely not deterministic because the idea of what a word means changes so in the context of human civilization, especially as hundreds of years go by. The idea of what it means to be brave is totally different now than it was like 500 years ago. The idea of what it means to be logical or, or uh valorous or, or, or loyal, you know, all that stuff is changing and it's, it's totally contextual. And so kind of the underlying theme that I was trying to get through with these machines is that even though they're superior to human beings, our technology only has a meaning with human beings existing. So if you remove human beings from this whole picture, then these things have no reason to, to live. They have no reason to be mm-hmm. here. And I think that that's true about all technology, you know, no matter how smart it gets. It, it's only got meaning to the extent that it has something to do with people. <laughs> so I, I guess that's it's a right. I hope philosophy. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that makes me think of the, the classic Isaac Asimov three rules, which anybody who has followed robotics even a little bit probably knows they are not actually applicable. They're not good outside of a fictional setting mm-hmm. do you do you have a preferred robot ethics rules or or do you think this sort of ability that you're describing to just need people is enough that you don't actually need rules like that man i wish it was that simple you know that you could could sort of cook up a universal set of rules and i think those rules are really great actually for getting people to think about this mm-hmm. but in reality i mean so like let's look at a very discreet specific situation autonomous vehicles right everybody Mm -hmm. now is kind of thinking like wow these are real we're gonna have to figure out how we feel ethically about them and and what decisions they're gonna make trolley problems yeah the trolley problem i was gonna call it the trolley conundrum i couldn't remember what it was called it was trolley (laughs) something conundrum better than problem i like that better Um, yeah so yeah so all of a sudden everybody's imagining you know whether you run over all the little children or the elderly people or (laughs) the person who bought the car or the or whatever volkswagen executives and like then, you know, you stop and you go, holy shit, this is like impossible to answer, right? But we're going to have to answer it. And, and I think that that actual exercise 
formalizing our ethical values as a society, that's like super important. Um, there's this great short story that um, John McCarthy, he was the, the guy who came up with the word artificial intelligence. He f- was the f- founded the field. He wrote one short story that was on his website. And of course, in a million technical papers. And I, I went and he's passed away, but I went and got the rights to it and put it in an anthology um, called, called Robot Uprisings. And he's got a world where robots, these ethical decisions they make are voted on in Congress. And so, and, and he's totally prescient about that, I think, because that's the way it's going to have to be. As a society, we're all going to have to agree. You run over, you know, the old person. <laughs> you run over, like, what do we value as a society? Well, we're going to have to figure it out and vote on it and then bit by bit put it into our robots. And it's like not very sexy or interesting. And I wouldn't want to read uh, a collection of short stories based on that theme, maybe, like I would with iRobot. <laughs> but, um, you know, but that's the way it is, I think. So you mentioned um, Robot Uprising and, and How to Survive a Robot Uprising. Wait, are those two separate books? Is there, there's an anthology, <laughs> yeah. but there's also How to Survive a Robot Uprising? Did I I'm mention that? Sure. I, yeah, no, uh, Robot Uprisings is an anthology that I co-edited with uh, John Joseph Adams, and we got a bunch of stories about robots. That's right. That's right. That's, <laughs> that was very cool. So you, you have a lot of experience in this area. So what, what are your top tips for actually surviving a robot uprising? What do we <laughs> as, as mere flesh vessels do? Uh, I love that you're asking this question because How to Survive a Robot Uprising was my very first book that I ever wrote. It's a little shiny book that people read on the toilet. And <laughs> it has, it's nonfiction. And I wrote it while I was a fresh-faced kid still at Carnegie Mellon studying robotics every day. And so, um, yeah, and it's full of actual real practical advice on surviving because I asked all the professors that I knew who, who worked in different areas of robotics, you know, what they would do. So um, let's see, you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of it is about fooling vision systems. Mm. Um, so like um, not sticking to typical trajectories, you know, zigzagging when you run, uh, messing up sensors. I mean, that's always my go-to advice. If you're fighting a robot, it's probably going to be stronger and quicker and all this stuff. But the sensors are always very uh, vulnerable. So if you throw dirt, in its eyes or whatever it's got for eyes. <laughs> LIDAR, you know, gets confu- would be confused by a cloud of dirt as well. Um, so like, you know, try to, or if you can attack the sensors, then go ahead and attack the sensors. But don't, you know, don't sit there and arm wrestle a robot. You're not going to, you're not going to win that fight. Win. No, you're not going to come <laughs> on, on top with that one for sure. So rain on the robots is what you're saying. Confuse their LIDAR, throw dirt in their eyes. Yeah. Attack the sensors and also just take advantage of your highly adaptable, general purpose, uh, you know, mandatory issued human body. Because, like, we can jump in water, we can climb, we can crawl under things, we can wriggle, we can. I mean, we have so much evolved ability to. Uh, to operate in multiple environments that, um, that that's one good way to, to screw up a robot. Cause they tend to be specialized, you know, they're built for mm-hmm. certain environments. And then once they get out of that sort of, uh, situation, then they're not so effective anymore. So, um, you know, get dirty. 
can I pretend to be a robot? Will they know? <laughs> They'll know, won't they? That, They'll that know. Is, that is uh, some advice that's in there. Do you know, the robot. <laughs> I, know, I know you sort of you know, pointed out that this was your first book and it was a long time ago, but you also wrote Where's My Jetpack? So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you actually know the answer to that still too. <laughs> so Where's My Jetpack was my second book. I know. And, and it's also, you know, it's got to be out of date by now, right? Uh, but um, but the, the cool thing about Where's My Jetpack was I, I answered all those questions. Where's my flying car? Where's my uh, rolling road? Where's my underwater habitat? And the answer to like 99% of those questions is that it exists and it's just very mundane um, and not useful. <laughs> and so with jetpacks, um, it turns out that a guy named Wendell Moore invented the first jetpack in the 50s. And what he did was he just took a uh, – so, like, you know, if you're flying a jet really high altitude, there's not a lot of uh, atmosphere to plane off of. And so mm-hmm. they have these little um, they have these little small jets that kind of orient the airplane. Actually, it's kind of like if you think about um, Battlestar Galactica, when those spaceships are flying around, and they kind of have a little poofs of gas, you know, that's that are right. sort of oh, orienting yeah. like the, the ship. Stabilizers almost. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, in real life, those are those are used and those are kind of like just basically little jets. And they're kind of like the right size to strap onto a person. <laughs> and so, uh, like an attitude jet. Yeah, so he strapped one on and immediately shattered his uh, legs. And so, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, but he tethered himself to the ground first. So, oh. you know, you got to okay. give Wendell credit. So then uh, he hired a uh, – actually, he hired the kid next door, the kid who used to mow his lawn, to be his um, test pilot from then on, a guy named Bill Souter. And so together <laughs> – Together, they on an army grant, they developed the the famous sixty seconds, you know, and then splat jetpack, rocket belt. So that that kind of was the state of the art for maybe, geez, maybe like thirty, forty, fifty years. And and I know now people have sort of tried to make it better, but but nobody's really hit a point where it's where it's viable. Well, you know, it's like, why? Like, what is really, what's better about it, I guess, is is like, the, what, these kinds of inventions, like, they have to solve some kind of problem that we're trying to fix. And there's just no, we, we don't have the infrastructure built up for everyone to have jetpacks. You know, <laughs> we like, just we don't want to fly, rules. Veronica. We don't know, care about infrastructure. Saying, like, well, I know, but it's like, it would be just mayhem. That's a litmus test. That's a litmus test, actually, for a lot of uh, sci-fi technology. Ask yourself if this technology is only good if you are the only person in the world who has it. (laughs) (laughs) And if the answer is yes, then you're probably not going to get it uh, anytime soon. Um, But jetpacks are like that, right? I think I had this great phrase in in Where's My Jetpacks where I said, uh, because it's kind of a funny book, you know, Um, and it says, like, jetpacks main purpose is what does it do it turns a human being into an inebriated mammalian torpedo (laughs) (laughs) i always kind of like those three words Uh, in succession (laughs) yeah we have a very important final question this feels really silly now after all this uh who is your favorite other daniel wilson the welsh rugby league player the irish judge the 17th century british mp maybe the singer the bishop of calcutta or is there a robot daniel wilson (laughs) Uh, I am, for that reason, I go by Daniel H. Wilson. Um, <laughs> and have oh, for it's a also long clear time. to us now. I have to, yeah. My, it used to be, I'm telling you, when I started, when I started writing, before I had any, before I had published anything, and you type Daniel Wilson, it was a guy on death row in Ohio. 
<gasps> and he had done all kinds of horrible stuff. And I'll tell you, that kind of worked itself out over time. Oh. <laughs> I, I guess it would. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, I decided to put an H in there. I go for Daniel H. Wilson. <laughs> but um, just for historical sake, yeah. <laughs> Well, but I think you're you know, avoiding the question. Is know. there a robotic Daniel H. Wilson? <laughs> um, man, as soon as I invent that guy, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a lot more time on my hands. But uh, <laughs> of course, what kind of what kind of optimat would I be if I admitted that I that I was That's a robot? Exactly what an optimat would say. Yeah, because I don't want to have to kill you guys. You know. <laughs> right, right, and we don't want you to have to do that either. Please. <laughs> But there is, there's actually a singer named Daniel Wilson that I kind of like. I mean, he's like popular enough that I've checked out his stuff and I dig it. Nice. <laughs> I feel like I, I would be too bitter and jealous. Yeah. You don't want to what? You know, I don't want to cross. The, is it like, it's like a Ghostbuster reference. I don't know. It's <laughs> always been kind of a gross reference. Like if I if I was in the <laughs> same room as this Daniel Wilson, would it be like crossing the streams? Would it? Re- would it be total well, platonic the, reversal? I don't remember protonic. the person's name now, but there was a guy who did a documentary where he gathered all of the people with his same name together in one place. And they had like, not a reunion because they'd never met before, but they had a convention for people who had this name. <laughs> yeah, I, remember I guess that. That, could be, that could be cathartic if your name is John Smith or something. Yeah, it could be huge. Well, Daniel H. Wilson, I will call you that from now on. Thank you very much. The full name. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, The Clockwork Dynasty is out now. People can get it everywhere. And you're on book tour. Where are you headed next? Uh, I'm going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I'm from. And then I'm going back to Portland, where I live. And then I'm going to a whole bunch of other cities that I'm not allowing myself to get freaked out about yet right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me back on. I... I had a great time. And of course, for all of you out there, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons. Thank you so much to all the folks who back our show. You can learn more over at patreon.com slash sword and laser. And you can also support the show by buying books like, I don't know, Clockwork Dynasty through our links. You can find links to that book and many more at swordandlaser.com slash picks. Send us an email at feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you next time. Bye. Like you're there!